So today we are closing out this summer study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, This is a letter written almost 2,000 years ago to a people halfway around the world. A different time, different culture, yet it's the same gospel. It's the same good news that in Jesus, the kingdom of God is invading this broken world that we are moving forward toward a day when there will be no more sickness or death or crying or pain. Amen? But Paul ends this letter by explaining to his church that we're not there yet. That there is a real fight ahead. And it's time to get ready. So are you ready to fight? See, you had the same response at 9.30 to 8 o'clock when I asked that question. Man, they were feisty. They were ready to fight. That might be for a couple other reasons, but they were ready. Anyway, <laughs> are you ready? And maybe, maybe you don't know what to say because there's two other important questions. Do you know how we are supposed to fight? And do you know who we are actually fighting against? So let's talk about it. Uh, This is gonna be one of those passages uh, that probably a lot of you are really familiar with. As I read it, you might see those flannel board pictures from Sunday school when you were a kid. Um, I just wanna encourage you as I'm reading this passage, just try to hear it as if you're hearing it for the first time. Okay, and then once we've read it, uh, we need to do a couple things this morning. The first thing is that we just need to deal with, we need to make the case that the devil and forces of evil in the universe are real. We need to wrestle with the ways in which evil works against us today. We need to understand the tools that are available to us as we struggle against the devil and his schemes. And then finally, we need to see what this means for us as a church and the ways that we are equipping and encouraging each other for the days ahead. And I've probably already said the name devil more times this morning than I've said in the past year, which is a sign of things to come, but also maybe a bit of a criticism that we haven't taken this seriously enough. So let's turn to Ephesians 6. I'm gonna read verses 10 through 18. And I'm reading from the New English Translation, just so you know. Paul writes this, he says, Finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Clothe yourself with the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness. And really quick, the Greek word there is one of my favorite words. It's the word cosmocrats. I love that word, the cosmocrats. Against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day. And having done everything, stand. Stand firm, therefore, by fastening the belt of truth around your waist, by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, by fitting your feet with the preparation that comes from the good news of peace. And in all of this, by taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit And to this end, be alert with all perseverance and petitions for all the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we need to start by making the case that the devil and evil forces in the universe are real. 
And even in a room, I can imagine, if you ask yourself, don't answer out loud, but if you just really think about it, like, do you believe those things are real? And I think we need to spend a minute here because the reality is that we are modern, sophisticated people. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I said that to the retired men on Thursday and they laughed. (laughs) I really mean that. We are modern, sophisticated people. We have science and we have reason on our side. We can explain things that our ancient brothers and sisters couldn't, right? But our modern way of thinking, it can lead us to easily chalk all of this up to myth and legend, just superstition. Like maybe some of this is hard to accept and I get it. But honestly, if you believe in a creator God, that descended to earth, fully divine and fully human, died a real death on a cross and then a couple days later walked out of the tomb and his spirit now lives in and through us. If you believe all of that, is it really such a leap of logic and reason to believe that there's a spiritual or a dimensional realm in which there's a personal embodiment of evil that's fighting to dethrone the king? Is that really so hard to believe? And and if there is, what better way for him to lash out against the father than by attacking his children? I think when it comes to our modern, sophisticated, scientific mind, I think C.S. Lewis says it best. He talks about the error of how we think about this. Many of you are familiar with it. It comes from the screw tape letters. He says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, and he just means humanity, can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And they hail the materialist, the one who doesn't believe at all, or the magician, the one that spends too much time thinking about it. They're pleased by both errors and hail them both with the same delight. You see, when we settle and come to believe that either everything is the devil or nothing is the devil, I think we are the ones with too simplistic of a worldview. Either way. And that's exactly what the devil is hoping for. We need to be more thoughtful about this. We need to allow for some complexity and some nuance in the universe. Have you guys been following that James Webb telescope? Have you been looking at any of the pictures or the articles? There's fascinating pictures of the universe, right? And one thing I'm noticing is so many of the articles, the headline reads something like this. New images from James Webb completely change astronomers' understanding of the universe. (laughs) Maybe there's some things we don't understand yet, right? Maybe there's still some mystery in the universe. And maybe we can humble ourselves and turn to scripture and it can actually help us to understand it. This is from John Stott. He's one of the most respected pastors and theologians of the past 100 years. He passed away in 2011. Uh, He was a modern Western person of faith. He saw the worst the 20th century had to offer. And in light of it, here's, here's what he had to say. He said, Paul brings us down to earth with realities that are harsher than our dreams. He reminds us of our opposition. That beneath surface appearances, an unseen spiritual battle is raging. So he introduces us to the devil, who he had already mentioned in chapter two and in chapter four, and to certain principalities and powers that are at his command. And Paul gives us no biography of the devil, 
no account of the origin of these forces of darkness because his purpose is not to satisfy our curiosity. It is to warn of their hostility and teach us how to overcome them. I believe there's a personal embodiment of evil and there are forces in the universe that are working to separate us from the love of God. That their only purpose is to hurt and oppose God by taking away from him the people who were meant to receive his love and his grace. And there are any number of horrific, obvious ways in which this plays out in the world. I don't need to name them for you because you see them every day on the news or you read about them in history. What's important for us is to consider that there are a million not so obvious ways. And those are even more sinister. So that brings us to our second task. We need to wrestle with the way that evil works against us in our world. So I want to go back to John Stott again. He says, is God's plan to create a new society? The answer to all these questions are going to be yes. So, okay. Is God's plan to create a new society? Then they will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the walls dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend that his reconciled and redeemed people live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them seeds of discord and sin. I love the way he frames this because I think when we think of the devil and these dark spiritual forces, I tend to think of my first exposure to the idea. <laughs> watching Exorcist as a kid. <laughs> way too young to be watching it. Couldn't understand it anyway. Right? So when that happens, then the devil quickly becomes this mythological horned beast who possesses us and makes our heads spin around and makes us say naughty words to the priest. <laughs> That is so easy to dismiss. It becomes nonsense. Almost as if one of his schemes is to make himself seem so nonsensical that we would come to believe that he is just a myth. Mythology, legends, even satire. So did you notice what John Stott did instead? He didn't go for like the big obvious evils like war and suffering and hunger and immorality. He doesn't mention supernatural events like demonic possessions. Instead, he's telling us the devil is a farmer. The devil's a farmer planting seeds. Seeds of doubt in each of us, among all of us together. And he's planting the seed so he can stand back and watch and then swoop in and harvest a crop that is filled with nothing but chaos and destruction. Thomas Brooks is a 17th century Puritan pastor. Uh, he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan and His Devices. They had such better book titles back then than today. But in that book, he's, he's got dozens of these devices, these schemes that Paul talks about he says the devil plants these seeds that both tempt us and accuse us. So I just want to share a couple of them, and I just wonder if any of these have ever taken root in you. I'm pretty convinced that they're taking root in our culture. 
Brooks says that the devil gets us to look at short-term pleasure and ignore the long-term consequence. That he leads us to rationalize our sin as a virtue. He convinces us to overstress God's mercy. To say, hey, God's job is to forgive. So when you sin, you're giving him the chance to forgive. Now that sounds silly. But in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians actually are saying that to Paul. They're saying, if God's grace and forgiveness is so great, then shouldn't we just keep on sinning so we can get more of it? They were serious. He had strong words. (laughs) He causes us to become bitter over our suffering. He'll show us all of these bad people that seem to have great lives. He'll start to convince us that we can compare one part of our life to another. Like, I do all of this good over here. Is it really that big a deal that I'm doing this over here? Like, these are all schemes that the devil uses to tempt us, but he also plants destructive seeds in us by accusing us. He's both the tempter and an accuser. He gets us to look at our sin more than we look at our Savior. He causes us to obsess about past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. He'll cause us to believe that the suffering that we're experiencing, it must be punishment or it's evidence that God is mad at us. He'll get us to think that the inner struggles, the feelings that we have, that we wouldn't even have them if we were actually saved, he makes us doubt our salvation. Like I wouldn't be wrestling with these thoughts and these desires if I were really a Christian. It's all lies. It's lies straight from hell. And one pastor sums it up like this. He says, the devil doesn't leave fang marks in our skin. He plants lies in our hearts. He's a farmer planting seeds. But Stott tells us that he's also a builder. And he's intent on building up these dividing walls of hostility between us. And I would argue he's doing a really good job today. Like, can I tell you what I might, it might be the greatest lie that the devil has told us in our culture, in America, in the 21st century, other than the lie that he doesn't exist. Like to a people who have been called to love our neighbor as ourselves, the devil has convinced some of us, not only that he doesn't exist, but that our neighbor is actually the real enemy. Like Democrats and Republicans. I'll make both of you mad. (laughs) You disagree on solutions to our problems. That's good. That's how the system was designed to work. Because healthy debate and disagreement lead to real solutions because nobody has all the answers. The problem is that you've both been lied to. You've been deceived into believing that the Republican or the Democrat is the problem, that they are evil. Like, why can't we even have a conversation anymore about anything? I mean, about racism or immigration or sexuality or abortion, these are all biblical issues. Not only, we can't talk about those issues, we can't even talk about little things anymore. Why? Why? Because we've been lied to. 
We've been deceived into believing that if you disagree with me, you are evil. You are the real enemy. And listen, I'm telling you, like, whoever is opposing you, they might be acting like little devils. (laughs) Or maybe you are. But they're not the enemy. And you've been called to act like a little Christ. They have been lied to. They've been deceived. Have some compassion. The question is, how did he pull this off? How did he get us to this place? And I think in part by planting within us a spirit of stubbornness. And it is this terrible downward spiral. I see it in my own life. Like, I start by just not listening. Not listening to ideas that are different from my own. Somebody on staff bought me a coffee mug and the coffee mug says, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just explaining why I'm right. (laughs) There's a reason they thought of me when they saw the mug. (laughs) But then the spiral, right? Then I'll start to reject alternative point of view just out of hand. I'll, I'll then begin to refuse regardless of the situation to ever change my mind. Then I stop discerning what's true just so I can stay married to whatever opinion I've already formed. And then when I can't defend that opinion, what do I do? Then I turn and attack the person. It gets a spiral. And this plays out in my relationship with my wife, with my children, with the people I work with. Just go back to sermons from the last three weeks and you can hear more about that. Like, I'm convinced that this spirit has taken root, not just in our hearts individually, but in our culture, and it's produced rotten fruit. It stinks. It's chaos and destruction. And unless there's a group of people who see another way out, how's it going to get any better? Y'all, Paul is not asking us to be stubborn. What he's compelling us to do is to stand firm. And standing firm is different from stubbornness because it means that I am willing to debate, to listen, to consider alternative views without sacrificing my core principles. It means that I can disagree with you and at the same time still remember who the real enemy is. I can disagree with you and still love you. And that work is so important That in this passage, Paul, he is not asking us to sit back to armor up and play defense, just hope nothing happens. He is inviting us to take the fight to the devil, but to do it by identifying him as the real enemy, then by standing steadfast in the Lord, trusting in God's power, not political persuasion, to take up the armor of God so that we are ready for the fight, not to fight one another, but to fight the powers and principalities that are hell-bent on tearing us apart. How is this ever gonna change if there's not a people who are willing to do it a different way? Two billion people on this planet claim to follow that other way. How are we doing? So this leads us to our third point. We have the tools we need in order to stand firm and fight this battle. We just have to use them. This passage started 
In verse 10, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We are to put on God's own armor, his armor, and rely on his power. Now, y'all, we fight battles each and every day. And, And some of them, we can win those battles by the strength and fortitude that is within us. Because not every battle is a battle against evil. (laughs) Remember, we're we're not to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in the devil. The devil is not in every detail. But when he is, our strength and our fortitude, it's not enough. Paul is saying that we cannot self-improve our way out of this mess. Paul is telling us that we are incapable of fighting against evil on our own. It's not hard, it's impossible. That only Jesus himself has the power to defeat sin and death. So if we stand a chance, what must we clothe ourselves in? In Jesus, from head to toe. And Paul uses this illustration to describe it. And sadly, over time, the illustration has actually become a distraction from his point. But, you know, he's a prisoner, I've told you. He's in chains, he's behind bars. And I can, this is one of those parts in scripture that I feel like I can literally see it taking place when he first wrote it. Like he's sitting down to explain to us how we're supposed to get ourselves ready for this fight. And all he has to do when he sits down is just look up through the bars. And what does he see? Like he sees a man dressed with a protective tunic under his breastplate, a helmet on his head, reinforced sandals on his feet, a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. He's a guard who has orders to stand always ready in case an attack comes. And like we've been saying for the past couple weeks, this imagery, that's not the point. It's just an illustration. What is the point? That only Jesus has the power to defeat sin and death. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So clothe yourself in him. And you start with the truth. The passage says, fasten the belt of truth. Some say, gird your loins with the truth. That word girdle is actually the right word. It is a girdle. It's an undergarment that covers you from shoulder to knee. And it's the truth Cover your entire being first with the truth. Accept and surround yourself with the whole truth that you are a child of God. You are redeemed and being restored into the image of God in which he created you. Whenever you hear those deceptions that I read earlier, remind yourself of that. Turn to Romans 8 and surround yourself with this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And everybody read this with me together. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wrap yourself in the truth and then be transformed by it. Be sanctified by his righteousness, by his right relationship with God and allow it to guard and protect your heart. 
And with your whole self wrapped in the truth, with your heart protected by the righteousness of Jesus himself, then get your feet ready because it's a long journey. And because you're gonna be taking the battle to the devil himself. And when you do, you don't fight using his weapons because you've been given the gospel of peace and it's a gift. It's a gift that you are to bring to the world and it combats the devil's lies and his deception. Now that's why this is so important. We're not called just to fight against the devil and the forces of evil. We are fighting for our neighbor. We are called to take the fight to him on their behalf. Jesus himself in the Beatitudes said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Blessed are the peacemakers, taking the gospel of peace to the world. And I'm convinced that if we are gonna do this, that it requires two of the four values that we have here at First Pres, that we must become a people who are biblically literate and a people who are gospel fluent. That we must be a people who read the Bible, who grow to know the stories, who, yes, can quote the verses not only to others but to ourselves when we need it. But that we would also be a people who will take the risk to speak it, to proclaim the scriptures into the world because there are prisoners in this battle and they need to be set free. We are called to be a people who speak and put into action the word of God as we live in the world so that the light can shine in the darkness and light and the lost can be found. Y'all, that is our mission. That's the only mission Jesus gave us. And that's another one of our values here at the church, that we are to be a people who are mission-focused, not easily distracted by the noise around us. Paul goes on to say that as the battle rages on, that we are to remember our salvation and rely on the trust that we have placed in Jesus. To remember who we are and whose we are, that we are children of the light, God's beloved. In Ephesians 4, he called us the new humanity. We are redeemed and being made new. We are more than conquerors. But here's the great danger we face. And I think this is a danger that this passage points out without actually saying it. That we have the armor available. We have the only weapon that we need. The devil has convinced us to set those aside and to make armor and weapons for ourselves and to use them against each other. And I think it's obvious when we're doing that, truth becomes my truth. The righteousness of Christ becomes my self-righteousness. The sandals that bring the gospel of peace, they're replaced by boots that are meant to dig in, to keep me from being moved from my truth and my self-righteousness. When I have done that, I have replaced my savior with myself, with my own worldview and with my own self-righteous deeds. My words become nothing more than a sword that's designed to tear down and destroy. We have to pay attention. We have to pay attention when that has happened, we repent and we return and we put on the armor of God. And to help us do that, Paul's given us one final command. We'll end with this. It's a final command to keep our mind and our spirit on task, to keep us focused on the real enemy, on the real fight, to remind us that we are not to fight against our neighbor, but against the devil and his forces on behalf of our neighbor. Paul says this. He says, pray at all times in the spirit and to this end be alert. 
And I think this speaks to the final of our four values here at First Pres, that we are to become a people who are spiritually formed. In light of the gospel that Paul has proclaimed in chapters one through three, and in light of the practical application of that gospel in chapters four through six, Paul now ends his letter by reminding us that we are to be in constant prayer so that we remain rooted in the Lord and we produce his fruit. And I've shared with many of you a prayer that is kind of become just like my breath and my heartbeat. I hear it all the time in the back of my mind. The Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a great story about how that prayer came to be. I'm happy to share it with you sometime if you haven't heard it, but I wanna leave you today with a different prayer. Like as you go and clothe your whole self with the person and the work of Jesus, there is this prayer um, that I think will be helpful and it's appropriately titled St. Patrick's Breastplate. And this is just part of the prayer. I just wanna read you a part of it. He says, the three in one and one in three of whom all nature is created Eternal Father, Spirit, Word. Praise to the Lord of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ behind me. Christ before me. Christ beside me. Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ in the quiet and Christ in the danger. Christ in the hearts of all that loves me, Christ in the mouth of stranger and friend. Clothe your whole self in Christ. Now, today. What happens to the Roman guard who's caught in his underwear when the battle begins? It's too late. Don't sit around waiting for the next battle to begin, it's too late. And this is why we offer opportunities every day of the week to do this work together, to become biblically literate, spiritually formed, mission-focused, and gospel-fluent. When our session a few years ago came up with these values and our mission, we read through the letter to the Ephesians. And as we started to land on these, we said, let's go through the letter and highlight all the passages that speak to one of these. And guess how much of the letter was highlighted? Every word. We believe that this is the particular way that the letter of Ephesians is being lived out in this community. It's time to get to work. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it'd be so much easier um, if we were in charge and people in the world just did what we said. (laughs) but I'm not very sure that things would get better. So we need to be reminded of who is in charge. We need to be reminded of the plan for the coming kingdom. We need to be reminded that we are called to be little Christs living in the world, proclaiming that good news in what we say and what we do. Father, give us the courage and the strength to ignore the voices in the world that are convincing us that our neighbor is our enemy. Remind us that they are an image bearer of God, a child of God who might simply be deceived or lied to and they just need to hear some good news. Give us the patience and the courage to be the people who deliver that news. Like Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said.